greetings from the chapel of Bishop's Court in Sale to the people of St Paul's Anglican Church in Warrigal and your extended online family. I'm grateful to your rector, Reverend Tracy Lawson, for inviting me to participate in one of your pre-recorded services. Thank you for this ministry to the Diocese of Gippsland and the wider church by posting these on the diocesan website together with services from St Paul's Cathedral in Sale. We are a broad church, embracing difference and celebrating diversity. This Sunday is a good example of that, as some Anglican churches keep the feast of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, or Thanksgiving for Holy Communion, as it is in our Australian calendar of festivals, where it falls on the Thursday following Trinity Sunday and is thus sometimes transferred to this Sunday. Echoing St Paul, Augustine of Hippo reminds us of the two related senses in which we can think of the body of Christ as being present. Sacramentally, in the bread of the Eucharist, for which we give thanks this week, and missionally, in the Church, those baptised into Christ's death and resurrection. So Augustine writes, You are the body of Christ. In you and through you, the work of the Incarnation must go forward. You are to be taken, blessed, broken, and distributed, so that you may be the means of grace and vehicles of the eternal charity. I want to reflect with you on what St Paul's exhortation in our first reading to discern the body of Christ, the Lord's body, might mean during the COVID-19 pandemic and what we might learn from the experience of being unable to come together either to receive the body of Christ sacramentally in the Eucharist, as we would normally do, or to give the usual gathered expression to our collective identity as his body, the Church. New Testament scholar Bishop N.T. Wright has described this recent experience of absence or alienation in terms of exile. We find ourselves, he says, in the words of Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, thoroughly confused and grieving for the loss of our normal life. The psalmist's question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land, translates quite easily into, how can I know the joy of the Eucharist sitting in front of a computer? Or, how can I celebrate Ascension or Pentecost without being with my brothers and sisters. Of course, Wright goes on to say, part of the point of Psalm 137 is precisely that it is itself a song of the Lord. That is the irony, a poem about being unable to write a poem. As we're reminded here, Israel learns and relearns its identity precisely in reflecting on such an experience. Indeed, great sweeps of Old Testament narrative and poetry are born in exile and post-exilic theological reflection, including the book of Esther, 
a text on which Tracy preached a fine sermon near the start of the pandemic in your Faith in a Time of Crisis series. I want to return to Esther and see whether her story might help us to discern the Lord's body afresh in this moment. Friedrich Nietzsche once said, I know of no other way of coping with great tasks than play. Esther is certainly playful, a tall story, a fantastic tale, which relates how a Jewish orphan became queen of the Persian Empire at a time when many of her people were living in exile in its provinces and when Judah itself was under Persian control. Although playful, Esther also attempts a great task, to sing a song of Zion in a strange land, to come to groups with exile. And whilst not an historical work as we might understand it, Esther is a theological response to Israel's historical experience of exile and persecution. Displaced, without king or temple, or priests. To read Esther in our own generation, against the backdrop of what is happening in the US, for example, is to sense the utter seriousness that is carried by its burlesque flavour and comedic charms. The whole story of Esther, whose name is a form of the Hebrew verb to hide, hinges around the secrecy of her identity as a Jew. She survives and ensures the survival of her people by successfully becoming her other, the Persian queen, before coming out as her true and full self. As if to foreshadow this, Esther is first introduced to the reader by her Jewish name, Hadassah, the orphaned cousin of Mordecai, an exile. Hadassar is immediately renamed in the story as Esther, as if to hide her ethnic identity. As we know, she wins the beauty pageant to replace the non-compliant Queen Vashti, but Mordecai instructs her not to let on that she's Jewish. Wearing her mask of secrecy, she is literally made over from Hadassar, the orphaned, exiled Jew, to Esther, the Queen of Persia. Esther's careful, deferential playing out of her public, royal Persian role unfolds alongside a far more sinister plot. Like Vashti before him, Mordecai refuses a direct command of the king by failing to bow down to Haman, the king's unlikely right-hand man. Aman, learning of Mordecai's Jewishness, but not Esther's, decides to apply a generic solution to this particular problem by destroying all Jews in the empire. It is a dangerous and uncertain world indeed when the fate of individuals and peoples hangs in the balance, or rather the imbalance, of frail egos as we know from our own geopolitical context. The tension between the public transcript and the private transcript 
that Esther must manage not only makes for great drama, it also names the real-life experience for Esther's first readers and far too often since. How many European Jews in the 1930s could relate to Esther's dilemma? When is it safe to come out? I won't rehearse Tracy's compelling account of Mordecai's question to his cousin. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. A question that speaks to us also in this moment of crisis. Risking her life in response to that question by appearing before the king unbidden, Esther approaches not only as his queen, but unbeknown to him, as one of those whose destruction the king has just ordered and toasted on the basis of Haman's chilling account of Jewish otherness. Granted a hearing by the king, Esther doesn't just come straight out with her problem, but plays it slant, buttering up the king and Haman by inviting them to consecutive banquets. This signals the start of a whole series of narrative reversals, which end up with Haman being hoist on his own petard, or rather hung on his own gallows, which he had, of course, built for Mordecai, a mere 50 cubits high, mind you, taller than Solomon's temple, a reminder that this is a tall story and a darkly funny one at that. At the second banquet, Esther times her disclosure, her coming out to perfection, revealing herself as one of those marked and sold for destruction. Cleverly diverting responsibility for this away from the king, Esther adopts Haman's very own tactics, painting her people as loyal subjects and Haman as the common enemy, the other, over and against whom she and the king now identify themselves. It is also, therefore, a cautionary tale, for the Jews in this story end up behaving like their Persian oppressors. In this week when footy has returned after a fashion, I have this theory about the tribalism of the AFL. The footy is the one place where we can wish the worst upon our enemies, our others. It's only a game, of course, isn't it? In the same way, might we think of this story as something of a playful way of pushing the boundaries, of asking how much the exiled Jewish community can bear and how far can it go in re-establishing its identity. Esther's forced integration into the Persian court, her being made over from Hadassah to Queen Esther, personifies the violence of exile experienced by her people, a rupture that is always more than geographical. She suffers the violence of assimilation, in which things that belong in the public sphere, culture, language, faith, are driven into the private sphere. If you saw the recently released documentary film, In My Blood, It Runs, 
you'll have had a sense through the eyes of 10-year-old Arenti boy Duan of the insidious effects of that ongoing repression of identity on our First Nations people. When the public education system that is meant to empower their children perpetuates separation from L-O-R-E law and the dreaming. Duan's exile in that short film is different to that of the stolen generation, but an exile of assimilation it is, nevertheless, forcing his aboriginality into the domestic space, making of it a private transcript nurtured by his grandmothers who, like Esther, have had to learn to navigate both domains in order to survive. Our being prevented from the usual patterns of gathered worship as the body of Christ in order to receive the body of Christ is not a function of the colonialism that was experienced by Esther's people or is experienced still by Duan's. We have not been caught between the death-dealing poles of assimilation and annihilation. On the contrary, our governments have gone to great lengths to acknowledge and address the identity crisis such as it is experienced by people of faith during the COVID-19 restrictions. Even so, N.T. Wright is surely correct to invoke the image of exile in helping us to find a biblical trope or metaphor that interprets our experience in this period. On the one hand, we've been reminded that being church is so much more than what happens on Sundays and that at one level we don't need church buildings in order to worship. As Wright puts it, church buildings are not an escape from the world but a bridgehead into the world. A proper theology of sacred space ought to see buildings for public worship as advanced signs of the time when God's glory will fill all creation. Christians should therefore celebrate every way in which the living Lord whom they worship in church buildings is out and about, bringing healing and hope far beyond the visible limits of church property. Warrigal Anglican Church has helped us to do this in the Diocese of Gippsland. At the same time, if our exile from public worship too easily becomes a kind of new norm. We risk being complicit in a kind of Western cultural assimilation that would see all religion as a purely private matter. So Wright laments in his UK context, I can still go shopping in the crowded little liquor store on the corner, but I cannot go and sit in the ancient prayer-soaked chapel Across the street, worship becomes invisible. By saying that we will temporarily abolish corporate worship and join with others only on live stream services from the vicar's living room, he ponders, we may seem to be agreeing that really we are just a group of like-minded individuals pursuing our rather arcane private hobby. Many parishes in this diocese, as around the world, have found that this online format is opening or reopening the experience of worship for more people than might otherwise 
darken the doors of our churches. Yet those same churches, by their very presence, activity and hospitality, remind the world of the gospel's public, social and political dimensions in the here and now. So another aspect of our faith in this time of crisis must be around our coming out, such that when we do return, more recognisably, to gathered worship, our church buildings and what happens within them function to help not only ourselves but also the world around us to better discern the body of Christ, both in the bread of the Eucharist and in the lives of the baptised. This means they have to be visible, audible, influential sites of public theology, of advocacy, of peaceful resistance to the violence of assimilation in its many guises, of the formation of character and virtue, and of refuge, not from the world, but for the world in which our churches are signs of Christ's body. Esther had to find a way to bring what was necessarily hidden for a season into the open. Her very life depended on her speaking the deeper truth of her identity. The survival of her community physically and spiritually demanded that this private transcript be heard in the public forum. As Persian queen, she no doubt had to learn in Isaiah's words to seek the welfare of the city she was exiled in, and so must we. But she also had to resist being completely absorbed by its many delights and assimilated into its worldview. For in order to sing a song of Zion in a strange land, one cannot forget about Zion or come to prefer the waters of Babylon. Just as Esther had to discern what it meant to be Hadassah, a member of God's covenant people in the Persian Empire, so we must discern what it means to reclaim our name, our primary identity as members of Christ's body in our own cultural exile. We don't yet know exactly what that will look like. But we do know it will mean being called out, consecrated, broken and reformed and sent so that in us and through us the work of the Incarnation might go forward. The Lord be with you.